Thank you for coming. Toda. Um, <clears throat> I want to explain something about the um, the worldview within which the yoga culture existed since very ancient times. Um, in other words, the civilization that you could say created yoga, that civilization had a very interesting way of seeing the world in terms of who we are, what the world is, what is beyond this world, and uh, why, we <clears throat> why we are sometimes happy and sometimes unhappy, and, and so on. It, it was a, an understanding of everything. And it was within this understanding that people um, began to practice yoga in various ways. So uh, I'm going to begin with the word karma. The word karma, which I'm sure you've heard of, uh, has various related meanings in Sanskrit. It comes from a Sanskrit verbal root. Sanskrit is an organic language in the sense that all the words are all the words are understood to, you could say, grow from roots, just like a tree grows from a root to a stem and into a tree and gives fruits and flowers. So in Sanskrit, uh, everything emanates from verbal roots. So the verbal root for karma is kri, from which we have English words like create. And so karma literally means to do, to act, to make, to create, and, and so on. And so karma, this particular word karma, can mean action, uh, activity, or in the sense of the laws of karma, it means the cosmic system in which actions produce reactions. And these reactions cause us to perform other actions. And so this, this creates a chain of actions and reactions. And based on the choices we make, uh, we receive uh, results, good and bad results, happiness and unhappiness of our own creation. So to understand how this works, it's uh, important to understand another word in Sanskrit, phala. Phala means fruit, literally like an apple or a fig, is a phala in Sanskrit. But the word is also used to mean the result of something. In other words, you, you perform an action. It can be getting out of bed in the morning, or eating breakfast, or walking out the door and going wherever you go during the day. So um, whatever we choose to do, the word action in English, and I'm sure the Hebrew word, whatever it is. So the English word action means not merely something that you do, but something that you do intentionally something that you choose to do, not something that is done to you. For example, if someone pushes me and I bump into another person, 
I'm not legally or morally responsible because it was beyond my control. But if I bump into another person, if I choose to do that, then I am responsible. So therefore, karma means action in the sense of something that you choose to do and therefore something for which you are responsible. That is what karma means. So because we choose to perform karma, uh, we have a motive. We have a motive, which often in Sanskrit is called hetu. Hetu can mean in general a cause, but it especially means a, a psychological or mental cause, which in English we call a motive, the reason that you do something. And so, because we choose to do things for reasons, like you get out of bed in the morning because you believe that you will have a better life if you get out of bed than if you stay in bed all day, although sometimes we think we'll have a better life if we don't get out of bed. So, in any case, anything that we choose to do, we choose to do it because we want some result. I eat because I want to be healthy, because I want to feel satisfaction or because I want to experience the pleasure of a particular flavor. Or I get in my car because I want to go to work. Actually, I, I don't really do that, but um, I guess in a sense I had to drive here, so I guess that's going to work. But anyway, uh, most people work in the world because, uh, well, people need money. We have to buy things, food and shelter. And if you have a family, you have to take care of your family. And so working for doing something in order to get money is an example again. So, so all these results we get, whether it's pleasure, for example, eating, eating something or touching something or looking at something beautiful. So all those, all those sensations are called, are no problem. Gets better all the time, as the Beatles said. So, all those results that we try to get are, are called karma phala, the fruits of work. So if you eat something because you enjoy the flavor, that experience of the flavor is karma phala, the fruit of the action. Or if you work to get money to pay your bills, uh, that money you get is again the fruit of your action. If you, let's say, uh, choose to associate with a person because you want to develop a relationship with that person, then the relationship is again the fruit of all the actions, all the actions that are necessary to cultivate a successful relationship. And so the whole trick, or the whole game, so to speak, in terms of karma, and in terms of our destiny in the universe is what do we do with that fruit? How do we think of it? To whom does it belong? What do we do with it? And so Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavad Gita is, pro is the main philosophical work on yoga. It's uh, many thousands of years old. Uh, the, the two main books on yoga are, of course, Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras by Patanjali. The Yoga Sutras um, are for, focused more on practical psychology and yoga practice because within this ancient culture, uh, you find two words that are always given together, Sankhya Yoga, which meant something like philosophy and practice. Philosophy and practice. 
And so the Yoga Sutras focused on the practice, on the yoga, and the Yoga Sutras Patanjali assumes, basically, that you know the Sankhya, you know the philosophy, and the main source of that philosophy is Bhagavad Gita, which also describes certain yoga practices. So the Bhagavad Gita is the most important book of yoga philosophy. So Krishna makes an interesting statement early in the Gita. Uh, it's in Sanskrit, so if you want to have an idea what the Sanskrit sounds like. Krishna says, Karmanyeva dikaraste ma phaleshu kadachana ma karma phalahitur bhur ma te sangos to a karmani. Which means that, he, Krishna tells Arjuna, that you have a right. Adhikara means a right, like human rights. And that's the only time in the Gita Krishna, actually, Krishna uses this word, a right, that you have, you have a right. So Krishna says, you have a right only to the action. You have a right to perform, and by action here he means your duty, that which it is natural for you to do, because every one of us has a nature. And Krishna says that even a wise person, even an enlightened person will act according to their own nature. For example, you may be artistic, or you may be intellectual, or you may be athletic, or you may be entrepreneurial or whatever, political. So, so we have different natures. So Krishna says that we have a right to a career, a vocation. We have a right to work in the world according to our nature. But then he, he makes a very interesting statement, but we never have a right to the fruit of the action. And then he says, um, do not be motivated by the action. In other words, don't do things to try to get results. Which, of course, sounds very counterintuitive. But that's what he says. We have to explain that. Don't be motivated by the fruits of your actions. And mate sang goes to harmony. But do not become attached to inaction. So what is he talking about here? And how can you work in the world and without having any right to the fruit of your work. So if, if you work and you get money, do you throw it into the Mediterranean Sea or, or give it to someone else? Or if you buy food, do you not eat it? I mean, what does it mean? So, so the, to understand what Krishna is talking about, because you have to understand this philosophy of action, because at every moment we're acting. At every moment we're doing something. Even if you're listening or sleeping or thinking or swimming. At every moment we're doing something and by doing anything we are interacting with the universe and if we act in the wrong consciousness we get trapped in the, so to speak, in the dark side of the force. We get trapped within the universal laws of karma. It's like when you're driving your car, if you turn the wrong way or not careful, you can have an accident. And so in that sense, the body, our body, there's, is, is a vehicle. There's a very ancient um, analogy or metaphor in the Vedas, even earlier than the Gita, very, very ancient, where the body is compared to a vehicle. So just like there's a passenger in the vehicle, so the soul is said to be the passenger in this body. 
And in a sense, we are driving this body through time and through space. We are doing things, and if we don't drive carefully, we'll have an accident. And that accident is called bad karma. So, and, and then we'll be unhappy. So, it, it's like on the highway, for example, sometimes in America, also in Israel, on the sides of certain highways, they put the, the, these grooves so that if you go off the road, your car starts vibrating. And that is to, of course, wake you up if you're sleeping or make you understand that get back on the road. And so all of our anxiety, all of our anxiety, all of our disappointment, all of our un unhappiness is actually a signal from the universe, uh, get back in your lane, you're not driving carefully. And so the idea is that if we drive carefully in life, if we act properly, we will always be happy and ultimately, we will be liberated. Which there's a Sanskrit word is um, moksha or mukti from the same root, which means that you, we are freed from birth and death. Because, you know, death can ruin your whole day. <laughs> some, people, some people say, you know, there's sort of type of bravado. Some people, you know, it's almost to show off this existential courage. I don't care, you know, about death. In fact, one American, obviously not very bright. He's not the only one. He wrote a book about how death is a great thing because when you die, it makes you appreciate life more. It's like, you know, if you don't have very much of something, then you appreciate it more. But actually, there's another way to look at it. And that is, uh, how should I put it? Um, if you do not value the loss of something, then you don't really value it. I mean, it's not like someone in your family. Oh, I just lost someone in my family. Oh, well, no problem. I mean, if you don't feel the loss of something, it means you didn't really appreciate it. And so if you really love life, if you really appreciate life, you don't want to lose it. And so you have these two words in Sanskrit, bandana, which we have an English word bondage. That's exactly what it means. Bandana, like to bind, to, to, to be trapped. And then moksha, liberation. So, um, to understand why certain activities lead to bondage, to suffering, to uh, an unhappy life and, 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 and limited options and other activities are liberating, we have to understand a little bit about how the universe works. And I'm not talking here about uh, astronomy or astrophysics but how the universe works on a moral and uh, conscious level. Um, and so this is all related. It's actually all part of one picture, but there's different pieces of the puzzle. Um, Krishna says in the Gita, again, this is the main source of yoga philosophy, in Sanskrit, evam pravartitam chakram, which literally means in Sanskrit that a wheel a, or a cycle has been made to turn. I won't go into all the technical grammar, although I enjoy Sanskrit grammar, but that's what it means. So, evam pravartitam chakram. Thus, a wheel, a cycle has been made to turn, and nanu vartiya jaha, and a person who does not keep the wheel turning, aghayur, uh, their life, the word for their whole life here is ayur, as in Ayurveda means the duration of one's life. So aghayur, their entire life is actually offends nature. 
agayur indriya ramo, because they are simply trying to exploit nature and mogung parta sajivati, that person lives in vain. So what is this cycle? What is this wheel that has been set to turn, made to turn, in which you must keep turning? Uh, that cycle is the cycle, to put it very simply, of receiving, receiving gifts and then offering back. Uh, and, and Krishna gives one very simple example of that. It rains. Israel, by the way, is, has developed probably the world's greatest technology on water conservation. And I know I'm from California, and there's, uh, they have a water problem there for the last several years. It's not raining enough, so Israel actually offered to California, you know, we'll teach you how to save water, which is, I think, a good idea, so I, ho I hope they take the offer. But anyway, so it rains, and without rain, uh, game over, because you can't eat plastic. I mean, so, and so that rain is not automatic. I mean, think of a, a baby, an infant, an infant, you know, little babies, they put everything in their mouth. And so their whole consciousness is to take things. They're not thinking like, oh, you know, who, who brought this food for me? They just eat it. And as a baby grows and develops greater consciousness, the child begins to understand that someone is actually feeding me. Someone is protecting me. Someone is actually working hard to take care of me. And at that point, as a child grows, a new emotion is, is, is uh, awakened, and that emotion is gratitude, gratitude. And upon experiencing this emotion of gratitude, in a sense, the child is really becoming a person. When we start to experience gratitude. And so gratitude is an emotion which leads you to reciprocate. That someone has been kind to me, so I will be kind to that person. Just like Egypt recognized Israel, they gave them back Sinai. Okay, here's your prize for being civilized. So, I mean, it's, that's just the nature of the world. So if you look at this principle of reciprocation, it literally is what makes the world go round. Take justice. You know, any civilized person wants justice in the world. And what is justice? It means that people get what they deserve. It means that people get what they deserve. So for example, let's say you work hard and you produce something, food, a work of art, or whatever, and I take it and don't give you anything, there's no justice in that. It's called stealing. And therefore, you are brought to the Department of Justice where they have to teach you about what justice means. So it's not only the basis of, of, of justice, reciprocation is the basis of love. What is a successful relationship? Where each person feels gratitude. And if you're in a relationship and you are really trying to be good to a person and they are not trying to be good to you, it doesn't work. Unless someone unfortunately likes being in that kind of relationship. But a normal person, a person who is healthy, will insist that in order to stay in a relationship, there must be reciprocation. And so, and, and so this reciprocation, it, it, it is the basis of justice, it's the basis of relationships, and ultimately it's how the universe works. 
So if we think that it just rains automatically, it just, you know, the world exists in such a way it just happens to rain. No, it doesn't just happen to rain. That's a gift. And actually everything is a gift. Our life is a gift. And so when we realize that, we feel gratitude, we want to offer back. We want to, and so that's the cycle. That's the wheel. You, I receive and I offer back. And when I offer back, that brings more gifts and that brings more offerings. And so that's the nature of life, receiving and giving. Receiving is not the same as taking. To take something is, you know, you just take it. But to receive something is different. And, and then I offer back. So how does this relate to yoga? Because as we will see in the Bhagavad Gita, yoga is actually a form of offering. It's ultimately an offering. And it's ultimately a way to keep this cosmic wheel turning so that we have a proper relationship with the universe, with ourselves, with other people, and with God. So, um, now, there's a Sanskrit word, yajna, which means an offering, <clears throat> an offering. And Krishna makes a very interesting statement, another piece of the puzzle. Krishna makes another interesting statement about the role of offering in the universe and in your life. He says that yagyarthat <clears throat> karmano anyatra loko yang karma bandana. That he says this world, loko yam, this world is karma bondage. In other words, I do something and then. I try to grab the fruit, I, I want to enjoy what I did, and in the act of trying to enjoy the fruit of what I did, I'm entangled in the laws of karma. And so Krishna says that the only way to free yourself from this bondage, which requires me to come back again, another birth, another death, another birth, another death, the only way out of this prison, you could say of birth and death, is by redirecting your actions. In other words, when I act, I act not for myself, but I act as an offering. In other words, I devote the fruit of the work to God. And of course the word God has, you know, so much baggage it could bring a, a jumbo jet down. But um, here, uh, the word God means that um, the source of everything. I mean, you can use another word. If you had a bad experience in your childhood with the word, you can use this, another word. But what we're talking about here, as in Vedanta, Janma Jeta, the source of everything. The source, that's what we're talking about, the source of everything, the source of our existence. So if, we, if I act in devotion, Everything changes. For example, let's say I work to get money to buy food. Everyone has to buy food. Now, if I just eat the food, I mean, eventually we're going to eat it, right? But if I just, if I directly just, you know, like an animal, just take the food and put it in my mouth. Actually, technically, animals usually, except primates, don't put the food in their mouth. But anyway, if we just eat directly, then that will create karma. So how do you eat? The idea is that before eating, I recognize that this is a gift, that food is a gift. 
and therefore I make a little offering. I make a little offering back to the source of that food. By offering it, uh, that food becomes spiritualized. And then I eat it, and I'm eating spiritual food. So if we talk about the environment, you know, like, like water quality, air quality, and all that, the first environment that you have to live in is your own body. The body is the first environment. And so if the body is not pure, your consciousness is not going to be pure. And every time we eat, we are constantly recreating our body. You know, like um, mirror, mirror on the wall. I don't know how they say it in Hebrew. Spieglein, Spieglein, an der Wand. That's the original from the Grimm's. Yeah, so when you look in the mirror, the face you're seeing actually didn't exist weeks ago. Because the skin, the, the, the body replaces the skin every two weeks. And so we're constantly reincarnating, actually. And so, carne, of course, Latin for flesh. And so we're actually reincarnating at every moment. Heraclitus, a, an ancient Greek philosopher, was famous for saying that you cannot step in the same river twice. Interesting, he lived, by the way, about 2,500 years ago at the same time as Buddha and, and Confucius and all those people. And so there was an idea going around, which, of course, Buddha taught and also, uh, obviously, Heraclitus in Greece, that the world is constantly in motion. Everything is constantly changing. And so you can't step in the same river twice. So we could also say you cannot breathe in the same body twice. Because at every moment the body's changing. And so if we eat spiritual food, we are recreating a spiritual body. We're actually building a spiritual body. And within that spiritual body, uh, it will be very easy for you to realize spiritual knowledge. Because your body will help you instead of pulling you away in your meditation. So why? I mean, how does that work? How does food become spiritualized? That's another question you could ask. Um, this is actually also explained in the Gita. Uh, there, there's, I think it's chapter 4, text 24. Brahmarpanam, Brahmahavir, Brahmagnal, Brahmana. Obviously, the word Brahma is coming up a lot. Brahma means uh, spiritual or absolute. And so the idea is that precisely because everything that exists comes from one source, which in the Gita is called Krishna. And that's another whole topic, but because every, uh, there are many names. I mean, it's not like we're going to get stuck on some name. I mean, you can, there are millions of names you could call that source. It's not sectarian. So because everything is emanating from the same source, matter and spirit, matter and spirit actually uh, interact. For example, my consciousness is not material. You can't weigh your consciousness, like how many pounds does your consciousness weigh? What color is your consciousness? It's not a material thing. And yet, if I will my arm to go up, for example, it goes up. So that's an example of spirit commanding matter. Or if I feel some pain in my body and it affects my consciousness, that is matter affecting spirit. So the reason, if any of you are interested in philosophy, by the way, this was the argument against Descartes. Uh, uh, René Descartes, he said that actually there's matter and spirit, and, and, and so people, materialists said, no, that's not true, because how do they interact? How could they interact if they're different energies? Anyway, they, they obviously didn't read the Bhagavad Gita. So, it's that, there's actually a very simple explanation, that is because matter and spirit come from the same source, th their sister energies, 
And I use the word sister because the, the words for energy in Sanskrit are feminine, like Shakti or Prakriti. So, um, like, take for example, an air, like, like an air conditioner. Like in your car, you, you have this one thing in your car which produces heat or cold. And heat and cold are actually opposite qualities, yet they come from the same machine. And so, so when we take a material thing, every material thing, whether it's you know, this little paper or the microphone or your body, every material thing is ultimately a spiritual thing in the sense that it emanates from a supreme spiritual source. And so when you take any material object, like let's say a banana, Israel produces very good bananas actually. I had one this morning. So, um, if you take something like a fruit, literally a fruit, like a banana, when you make that offering because you are offering it to the spiritual energy which contains the universe, which is, pervades the universe, which is actually sustaining everything. So when you offer that food to spirit, it, it, it takes on a spiritual nature. Brahma Arpanam, Brahma Havir. And so, the idea is that we have the power to spiritualize our lives. We can spiritualize our bodies. We can spiritualize our minds. We can spiritualize our relationships, our food, everything. And that's really what yoga is all about. So, I just, uh, what else did I write down on the way here? Um, so, another important point is that uh, in terms of illusion or, or not understanding, why don't we understand the absolute or God? Why don't we understand ourselves as eternal beings, which we really are? We're just, as they say in America, DBA, doing business as a material body. But actually, we are spiritual beings. So, why don't... If, as spiritual beings, we have unlimited pleasure and unlimited knowledge, why don't we just go there? Why don't we just go to that consciousness? Why are we struggling? Why are we suffering? If we have access to it, because we have a problem. That is, we are attached to dead matter. We are attached to matter. Why are we attached? Because it's the nature of, of the, the physical world that it interacts with our senses, with our eyes, with our ears, and so on, and our skin. And, and as the world, as the physical world interacts with our senses, we experience pleasure and pain. For, we experience pleasure and pain. For example, we see certain beautiful things that give us pleasure, and certain we see other things that are tragic or painful, whatever. People speak to us, we hear certain words like, I don't love you anymore and then there's pain, or I love you, and, and there's pleasure, so if it's the right person saying that. So, so the idea is when we touch things, when we hear things, see things, smell or taste things, all these interactions produce pleasure and pain. And so because we are pleasure-seeking creatures, we want to hold on to the pleasures and get rid of the pain, or get rid of whether it's physical or emotional. And so basically we spend our entire lives pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. And that's what we do. And you could say, well, that's natural. It's just like, for example, if you, I mean, the body itself, if you touch, let's say if you touch fire, your body itself pulls away from the fire before you're conscious that you touched it. So, so we're even physically wired. Our whole neurology uh, programs us to seek pleasure and avoid pain. However, we can understand that uh, 
that pursuit of pleasure and avoiding pain has to be governed by some higher principles. Because for, let, let's say a man sees a woman and he feels pleasure by seeing her and so he wants to enjoy the woman. Uh, he can't do that. You can't do that. You can't simply go and attack someone or, or try to dominate someone. Uh, it, it, it's criminal and it's actually disgusting. So the idea is that that's what civilization means, that you cannot simply grab something because you like it. You have to consider who does it belong to, this is another person. There's all kinds of things you have to consider. And then we get back to the principle of the cycle of offering, not just grabbing, but accepting and offering back. So um, Krishna says we get trapped in these dualities, the duality of pleasure and pain, trying to grab pleasure, trying to avoid pain. But if we understand ourselves to be part of something greater, then it, it changes the way we approach pleasure and pain. For example, let's say you're on a team you know, some sports team, soccer, basketball, whatever. And so naturally, th there's a natural human vanity or pride that I want to be the star. I want everyone to love me and admire me. However, if you, you have to be a team player. If you, if you want your team to win, there's a type of unselfishness where you pass the ball or you act not simply for your own glory, but for the success of the team. Because there's a higher pleasure, if, if, you know, for people who understand these things, there's a higher pleasure in the team winning. Just like, for example, in Israel. Obviously, Israel's survival, or frankly, the survival of any country, depends on the people remaining, to a reasonable degree, united. So if everyone only does what they want and has no interest in the common good, it doesn't work. You don't have a country, you just have chaos. And so at every level, same thing in a relationship. If there's a relationship where one person thinks, yeah, I should just do whatever I want, and the other person should just do whatever I want, and then it's a great relationship. You know, some people think that way. Obviously not a highly evolved way to look at relationships. So in order to have a successful relationship, you have to also think of what the other person wants. And the other person has to think of your needs. It's the nature of life. And so when you understand that ultimately the entire universe, and actually there's a lot beyond the universe, to think there's only one universe is really provincial thinking. You know, the word provincial in English means that you think your province, your area is everything. So there's a lot outside. The universe is actually kind of just a local thing we have here. So when we understand that everything that exists it's just one team, it's just one united, you know, I mean, if you saw the Avatar movie, you understand this. <laughs> Actually, the Avatar movie, they made all the, the good guys blue because of Krishna, and that's why they put the little mark and everything. The, um, what's, that, what's that guy's name, the director of the movie? Yeah, he's, he's a friend of a friend of mine. And, uh, <laughs> and he's, he admitted, yeah, that's, that's why he made the people blue. But anyway, so, so if you saw the Avatar movie, you understand the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> or, or, or at least part of it. So, so actually the word Avatar, I'll throw this in. The word Avatar in Sanskrit, uh, Ava, Ava means down, downward. 
and Tara means crossing. So because there is a spiritual world, there's a spiritual realm, and then you know there's this stuff down here, when an enlightened soul, like in Buddhism they call it a bodhisattva, and uh, when a, an enlightened being or God or whatever, Krishna, comes, crosses from the spiritual realm down to this realm to try to give us some you know, life coaching, uh, that's called crossing down or descending, so that's the avatar. So, uh, moving right along. So the idea of yoga, the whole idea of yoga, the word yoga means uh, connection or link. In, in English, for example, there's a word conjugal. If you know con, con from Latin, it means with, and jug, like connecting with, conjugal. So the most intimate kind of relationship is, has the same root as Sanskrit, uh, conjugal, or the, or the English word yoke, as in agriculture, when you know, yoke is what connects a, a let's say, like a, 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 an ox or a horse to a plow. So that's called a yoke. That's Sanskrit, yoga, yoke. So the idea here is that yoga connects us. It connects us to the source of our own existence. That's what yoga means. So there were different, th th there are, not there were, there are, still are, different kinds of yoga. And I'll, I'll talk about four of them, the, the four main kinds of yoga as described in the Bhagavad Gita. Of course, nowadays there's probably an unlimited yogas. But, but actually, in the original system, the ancient system, uh, there are four main kinds of yoga, which are, are presented because people have different natures. So you just have to find the yoga that works for you, so to speak. The, uh, the hatha yoga, or, or the exercise and all that, uh, of course, which is very good for your health and even good emotionally, was originally intended to make you, get you in shape so you could sit down for long periods of time and meditate. Because if you haven't done yoga, that kind of yoga, and you just sit down for a long time, your legs are going to be, you know, really in pain, and you won't be able to do it. So it was to prepare people for meditation. Of course, there are many, there are many obvious benefits from it. But the four main types of yoga, all of which could involve hatha yoga, all of which could involve meditation, but the first is karma yoga. And the word yoga means here that you connect to God or you connect to the source of your existence through, in this case, karma, which means activity. So karma yoga was meant for people who have to work in the world. They have families, they have jobs, they're in the world as most people are. Most people are in the world. And there's nothing wrong with that, it's just where you are. So the idea was that you do your work in the world, whatever it is, and you offer the fruit to its source, to Krishna or to God. And so that, for example, let's say you work and make money and buy a house, or rent, or rent a house or an apartment, whatever. You, you transform your house into a spiritual ashram. The, you've heard the word ashram, right? <coughs> the word ashram is also interesting. You know, Sanskrit's a very interesting language. Shrama, in, in, in Sanskrit, shrama means um, <coughs> kind of knocking yourself out, like working really hard. And so that's shrama, sort of tiring yourself. And so a place where you come to rest. So it's the opposite, ashrama. Ashram is a place where you come to rest, where you become free from all your mental, emotional, and physical fatigue. So. So the idea is that um, karma yoga means you transform the place you live 
into an ashram. It's a spiritual place. And so rather than thinking this is my place, we think, for example, this is God's place. And, um, and so I'm living here and I offer my food to the source of my existence. Whatever I do, I try to uh, keep myself in higher consciousness. I invite people. Of course, everyone has social life and friends. And I try to cultivate friendship with people who are interested in, uh, in higher consciousness. So in that way, the food we eat, the place where we live, our, our, I mean, our music, like there was this beautiful music playing when we came in. So, so all the things we spend money on can become part of your yoga practice in a higher sense. That's karma yoga. I work in the world. I have everything the person needs to live in the world. You know, if you, if you have a car, a house, or apartment, or family, or food, you know, entertainment, social life. Life doesn't change. It's just that I do life. You can talk that way in California. That we, we, we live our life in a way that it all becomes spiritualized. It all becomes an offering. Everything I'm doing is an offering. And I'm spiritualizing, transforming my life and then I'll, I'll be happy all the time because uh, I'm not trying to exploit my life. I'm living in devotion as an offering, but I'm receiving so much. So I'm not trying to, when I try to grab happiness, I suffer. And when I just try to give happiness, then the real pleasure just comes back to me naturally. As they say in English, it's better to give than to receive. So that's karma yoga. Now some people are intellectual. Uh, I have that problem. So, so the idea is that, that if someone is intellectual or philosophical, likes to study, likes to learn, that's also an offering. Because we have God-given intelligence. We are given this intelligence. We're given this enthusiasm for knowledge. And so we try to... Simply by, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita, at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna, anyone who simply reads Bhagavad Gita has honored me through jnana yoga. Jnana means knowledge, by the way, Greek gnosis, like agnostic, someone that doesn't know or doesn't know if they know. And so gnosis in Greek is knowledge, which is simply Sanskrit jnana. So jnana yoga is... Um, you study, you learn, you explore the universe, trying to understand, but you do it with devotion. Be, like for example, let's say applied technology, people are trying to understand the world specifically so they can exploit it. That's the whole purpose. I try to master something, I try to understand it so I can exploit it. But in Jnana Yoga, I'm trying to understand so that I can honor what is truly honorable, so that I can love what is most worthy of my love. So, so the act of pursuing knowledge is an, act, is an act of devotion, and it's a spiritual process of knowledge. So uh, then there's dhyana yoga. Dhyana means meditation. And by the way, as, as you probably know, uh, Buddhism began in India, and then through various, actually commercial trade routes and other events, went east to various places, north and east, Tibet and Sri Lanka, and then China and ultimately Japan. And so when the Japanese uh, tried to pronounce the Sanskrit word dhyana, it came out zen. So that's what the word zen means. Okay. 
So anyway, dhyana yoga means that if you are inclined, if you are inclined to meditate, it's just, that's just what you naturally like to do, that's another form of yoga. And of course then uh, we meditate on the highest truth, we meditate on the source of our existence, or Krishna. Krishna, by the way, just a word on what that word means, as you can see I also have a linguistic issue. Krish, Krish in Sanskrit means to attract. It means to attract. I mean, if you think of the relationship in English between the word traction, like farming, traction, or like, you know, car, you know, traction, and attraction. So traction means pulling, and attraction means something that pulls the mind. Like, for example, let's say you, you meet someone that's, that, that's just extremely beautiful, and it's not an intellectual decision. I think I will enjoy looking at this person. The mind is just pulled. And so when we see very beautiful things, when we, when we encounter great wisdom or intelligence, there are certain things or power. Certain, certain things just pull the mind. And so that's called attraction. Same in German, by the way. Ziehung, Anziehung. Anyway. So, in Sanskrit, the same word is krish which means something which pulls and also pulls the mind in the sense of attracting, attraction. And so, na, na in Sanskrit, in this case, is an abbreviation of the famous Sanskrit root nand, from which we get the word ananda. Uh, and it means uh, bliss or, or giving or experiencing bliss or pleasure. So, Krishna means that which is most attractive and therefore is a source of pleasure. Very positive idea, by the way. So, uh, meditating on the source of our existence or is spiritual meditation. Because we can, I mean, business people meditate on how to make money. That, I mean, technically, it's also meditation. But spiritual meditation means meditating on who I really am, where I come from, what is the source of my existence, and what is the relationship with the source of my existence. That's Dhyana Yoga. And then ultimately, we come to bhakti yoga. Uh, Krishna, after describing all these different yogas, for example, at the end of the chapter six of the Gita, Krishna says, uh, yogi nama pi sarveshang. Of all, indeed of all yogis. Yogi nama pi sarveshang. I'm giving you very literal translations of the Sanskrit. I, um, some people really like esoteric stuff, but if any word can mean anything, then no word means anything. You know, if everything means everything, nothing means anything. So, so it's good to start with what the words actually mean. And what Krishna says is that sarvesham, yoginavi sarvesham, indeed of all yogis, antaratmana, one whose inner self, interesting term in Sanskrit, antar, which in Sanskrit is in English, internal, antar. So antaratma, the inner self, because even though we are souls, in our daily life we act as if we were bodies. For example, you're Israeli, I'm American, someone's male, female, a certain age, a certain whatever. So to work in the world, you, know, you have to kind of take on a bodily identity. If you're applying, let's say, to get into a, a university or for a job, and they say, last name, you know, where were you born? And you quote the Gita, I was never born, I'm an eternal unborn soul. You know, you, your application probably won't work. You know, you won't get into the school, you won't get the credit card. So, in the real world, and this was understood in, in this culture, 
So they have, they have the term paramartika, which means the highest truth, paramartika, what is really the ultimate highest truth? And then there's byabaharika, just for you know, social dealings. So if you're trying to get a credit card and you write down, I was never born, uh, you won't get the credit card. But if we're talking philosophy, if we're talking serious philosophy, then you should understand that actually you were never born, it's just the body is born because you're an eternal soul or self. So, the, so Krishna says the antaratma, meaning the inner self, the real you. So bhakti means we come to the point of love. I mean, for example, take all these yogas. Let's say you meet someone. And let's say you work with that person, or you help them out, or they help you out. So that's like karma yoga. You're doing practical work in the world, you help each other, you offer each other things. And then you come to the point of jnana yoga. You get to know each other. Because you find that in working with someone, or just maybe exchanging favors or gifts, you find that actually we really enjoy being together. So you, then you want to understand more about the person. And then you come to the point of meditation where you're always thinking about the person. And then finally, if everything goes well, you come to the point of bhakti where you really both declare that we're in love. And so, so the, the, this progression of yogas is really, it's, a, it's just life. It's just the nature of life. It's not an arbitrary hierarchy. It's just, it's life itself. And so the, the highest yoga is where you fall in love with God or the, the source of your existence, realizing that source of our existence is infinitely beautiful, and that's why every one of us is ultimately far more beautiful than we now know. And the reason is because we come from infinite beauty. And so when we enter into that loving, when you love someone, it's the most natural thing in the world to offer. When you really love someone, nothing gives you as much pleasure as, as giving them something. Whether it's giving them emotional support, or giving them food, or giving them whatever. It's just the nature of love. You ex we express love by giving, and we express uh, vanity by taking. So this bhakti yoga is the highest yoga because it's the, it's the stage of pure love. It's not merely working in the world. It's not merely intellectual. It's not merely meditating. It's actively and fully loving and being loved. And that is bhakti yoga. Well, all this explained in the Bhagavad Gita. I, I actually translated the Bhagavad Gita uh, last year in Santa Monica. And uh, actually, it was a year, two years ago in Santa Monica. God, time flies. Anyway. So... Um, and I sort of systematically explained all this and much more. So that book has actually been in Israel. It's in, it's in customs right now. They didn't understand that it was my book and they should just let it through. <laughs> so anyway, you're all welcome to read it. Um, so I think that that's enough for now. Are there any questions on, on these points? I'd be happy to address anything that... Oh, we, uh, we offer it to God, to Krishna, the source of our existence. But the good news is you don't lose it. For example, uh, this process of offering, making offerings to God, I mean, you obviously find it in the Bible, you find it in, in ancient Greece and Rome, it's in Homer. For example, if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, you'll see that no one, no civilized person ever eats or drinks anything unless they've offered it. So, so, so this 
gratitude, this acknowledging the source of these gifts. And, and, and in the history of the world, I think there's not a single case where someone offered their food, uh, let's say to Christian, it actually disappeared, like, oh my God, where did the food go? The point is, in offering it, it's transformed, and, and then it, it, it comes back to you as, as a spiritual energy, so that if you offer your life to God, you spiritualize your entire life, your consciousness, your food, your body, your relationships. So offering doesn't mean losing, it means transforming. It, it, it means transforming. Because as soon as we offer, it's offered back to us. And what's offered back to us is greater than we offered, what we offered because it's been spiritualized. But it's, it's the thought that counts, right? When I was a little kid, I was very lucky. I had, I had really great parents. I, I, I just had a very fortunate life. And uh, I remember when I was a little kid in Los Angeles, um, on my mother's birthday, my father would take me to get some little gift. And, you know, for, I think for 10 straight years, I just went to the Save-On drugstore and got little colored bath bubbles or some little balls, but I had no idea what to get my mother. But, but I would get her a little gift, and my father would get a tie. My father's birthday, my mother would take me to get something. And, and so obviously, my parents didn't need these little things I got them. Obviously, they didn't need it. It wasn't about needing it. It was that, but they were just so happy. They were, I had very loving parents, and they were just, um, they were just incredibly happy. Just that we'd, we'd made, it was the act that their children, you know, had, had loved them and just gave them a little gift and, and that meant the world to them. So, uh, so yeah, so offering doesn't mean losing, it, it, it's just, it, it, cause, because it, it's a cycle, it's a wheel. It's not just this unidirectional thing where you lose everything, give it away. Because when you offer, you're, you're keeping the wheel turning and everything will come back to you more and more and more. Yes? How you practically do this connection to, to spiritual life? How do you feel that you are there? Okay. Good question. Um, first of all, how we feel. If you are doing this correctly, you will feel more than happy. I mean, it's more than happiness. It, it's actually a spiritual bliss. Krishna says in the Gita that when you experience this, you know there's no greater pleasure. Okay. Um, for example, I am speaking to you right now. This is bhakti yoga. So I, you know, I, I'm not here to, to, to get something for myself. I, I, I really don't need anything. I mean, I'm very happy. So, um, but it's a service. It's a service to you, it's a service to Krishna. I'm just trying to, to serve. So, uh, so if you think of every part of your life, whatever you do in life, you, Krishna says actually, jet karoshi, whatever you do, whatever, you know, your, your family life, your, your intellectual life, your cultural life, your, you know, whatever you do, uh, do it in that spirit of an offering. For example, when parents, they love their children, so, and so they, you know, they work hard, and they're consciously thinking, I'm doing this for my child. And so it's an act of love. If you think about it, people cook for each other, they, they, they work to, you know, to help each other. They, it's these acts of love that really make life worth living. 
And so ultimately there is a what is called in Sanskrit a supreme person, Purushottama. And it, this is not anthropomorphism, it's not some crude anthropomorphism. It, it's the idea of, of, any, of an infinite divine person. Because if you think about it, if the absolute truth, as Vedanta says, is the source of our existence, then if the ultimate truth is impersonal, too bad for you. Because if the ultimate truth is impersonal, where are you going to go with that? Personally, I love being a free individual person. I wouldn't give it up for anything. The fact that I'm, an, I'm free, I'm an individual. I can choose what I want to do. Freedom. I mean, why give that up? Why give that up in the name of meditation? <clears throat> meditation and spirituality is not meant to destroy your individuality. It's meant to purify it. It's meant to spiritualize it. For example, let's say I have an infection in my hand and it's so, you know, it's just unbearably painful. And so someone could actually get to the point where, okay, they want their hand cut off. I mean, it's a horrible thought, but... But obviously the real solution is not to cut your hand off, it, it, it's to take out the infection so you, you have a hand. So the way I put it is suicide is not healthy, whether it's physical or philosophical or mystical. To get beyond our ego, it's not a question of getting beyond our ego. Just like, for example, in Freud. Freud, if you know his, his system, the word ego, which is just the Greek word I, ani, you know, the word ego, it, it's not a bad thing. It just means you. You're, you are a unique person. You are the center of consciousness and feelings. No one else in the universe is, is exactly like you. So that if you didn't exist, the whole universe would be diminished. So false ego means, for example, I, I take this bio-machine to be in my body, uh, to be myself. I mean, the body is an amazing, miraculous thing. And, and uh, I personally, you know, I walk about, I guess you do kilometers here. Okay, I walk about, you know, nine or ten kilometers a day. I try to eat very healthy food. So I'm, I am totally pro-health. But the point is, it's just like I take care of my car. I change the oil. And, and so I'm very grateful to have a car. Actually, I just sold it in, in uh, America, but... So when I do have a car, when I need one, I get one. It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to have it. I just, I don't think I'm the car. It's not like those old Beach Boy songs where you kind of identify with your car. So, so the idea is that um, take care of your body, be healthy in every way. But the body is this miraculous bio-machine. You are inside the machine. And so when you live not for the machine, like some people, they, you know, it's my car, they clean their car every day, they're shining it, polishing it, you know, buying little ornaments to put on their car. So, so when you do everything as an act of love, as an act of whatever you do, as an act of gratitude, you are connecting with the source of your existence because when you, if you love someone or you're falling in love with someone, you hope to have a relationship with that person, you know, you may try to do something with an act of kindness. You're trying to somehow, because the idea is if I act kindly to this person, if I give attention to this person, this person may reciprocate with me. And if I give attention to this person, this person gives attention to me, a relationship is created, you know, at some level. And then, and then that's what you do. By, by more acts of kindness and giving, the relationship develops into love.
And so it, th that's exactly how we develop a relationship with God, or the Absolute, or Krishna, or whatever name you're comfortable with. The idea is by acts of giving, by acts of love. And so whatever you do, do that as an offering, as, as an act of devotion. Your whole life becomes spiritual. And then because you're not accumulating more karma, you start to feel this liberation, you're free. Because actually only people who are not atta attached have the luxury of loving. It's like, for example, let's say I'm really hungry. It's like, I'm like really hungry. And I'm, I'm at the point of hunger where I can't think of anything else. Like, if it's not a restaurant, I don't want to know about it. And, or, or, a, or a supermarket. And so, if someone comes up to me and says, Hi, can I talk to you about this amazing butterfly I saw? No, I'm starving. So, so it's, it's the stronger our bodily desires are, the less we have the luxury or the possibility of thinking about other people, other things. The same thing with sex desire. The, the stronger sex desire is, the less possibility you have to really think about what's good for the other person because you need something. When you really need something, you think about your need. So, and, and this is what's called in postmodern philosophy, if you follow such things. It's called, you know, objectification in the sense that every one of us is a subject, not an object. You are a subject. You are the center and the subject of your own existence. And yet, let's say I want to sell you something. I want to get some money from you. And so I see you as an object. You know, no matter how much I say, oh, how are you? Great to meet you. Yeah, let me take you to lunch. But the real point is, get your money. So therefore, when I want something from you, whatever it is, it could be financial, it could be emotional, it could be, you know, obviously not with you, but it could be, you know, let's say people want something sexual from each other. So when we want something from other people, we, we see them as objects of our satisfaction. So if you're in a relationship where someone sees you as an object of their satisfaction, not good. Because you're a subject. Every one of us is a subject. And if I honor that and respect that, you are a subject, not the object of my pleasure, but the subject of your own happiness. Then we start having healthy relationships. And the same thing with God. I mean, why objectify God? God is not simply the source of everything I want. People have trouble seeing God as a subject. Because it's, you know, give me this, give me that, I want this, I want that. Why didn't you give me that? So, so, when, and so when you start to see everyone as a spiritual being, when you start to see that every living being, not only human beings, this is not humanism. Humanism is simply another form of oppression. It's like sexism or racism. I mean, consider, what do sexism, racism, and humanism all have in common? They have something very big in common. What they have in common is the idea that the only people I respect are people who have bodies like my body. So I only respect people of my race, my gender, or my species. So this idea that, sorry, your body's not like my body, you have no rights. This is absurd, this is barbarism. And so the idea that other conscious, feeling creatures have no rights, I can just brutalize them, 
murder them because their bodies are different is, is obviously uncivilized. So when I see that every living being is part of God, Avatar movie, when I see that when I see that every living being is ultimately a spiritual being and we're all equal, it's like, I mean, take light for example. Here's, here's an analogy. Let's say a traffic light, red, yellow, green. The point is that all of the light is really just clear white light. But when that light passes through a red filter, it comes out red. It passes through a yellow filter and comes out yellow or green or whatever other color. But all of the light behind that covering is the same light. So when your consciousness comes through a baby's body, baby body filter, it comes out as baby consciousness and you talk like a baby and act like a baby. And then if your body grows, let's say you're a child or an adolescent, your consciousness is coming through that filter so it comes out as adolescent consciousness or male consciousness or female consciousness or Israeli consciousness or American consciousness. And, and so on and so forth, or dog consciousness, or cat consciousness, a lot of cats in Israel. So, so the point is that we have to not see people as their coverings, but see that behind all of those screens, all of those filters, everyone is the same. Everyone is simply a center of pure consciousness. And when we see things, that's, by the way, philosophy, Western philosophy is called biocentrism. But when we see that, when we see that, then we respect all living beings. Every living being is worthy of our respect. Great for the environment, by the way. Great for the environment. Environmentalism is not enough. For example, they're about to have a big environmental, world environmental conference in Paris. And if you watch that movie, Cowspiracy, C-O-W, Conspiracy, Cowspiracy, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, they will not talk about the number one cause of greenhouse gases. They refuse to talk about it. Why? Because it's animal slaughter. And there's a movie made about this where this guy, he's an American, he just went around and interviewed all the leaders of all the biggest environmental groups in America and they refused to talk about it. They could not deny it. So according to the United Nations, Animal slaughter causes more greenhouse gases than all the motorized vehicles on Earth. That means cars, buses, trucks, trains, planes, boats, everything. But they will not talk about it. They will not talk about it in Paris. It's a conspiracy. So, so the idea is if we respect all life. Environmental, because you see, here's why environmentalism will not do the job. Because according to environmentalism, if you had no other moral principle, you had no other concern except a healthy environment, it would be logical and desirable probably to kill about at least four billion people. Maybe five billion, depending on how much you like green spaces. So, because environmentally, it's a great idea, morally, it's an utter catastrophe. But environmentally, it's the way to go. And actually, if you look at the history of environmentalism, and if you look at the history of the animal rights movement, which goes back several hundred years in Europe, what you find is that even hundreds of years ago in England, in Europe, in France, there was a conflict between the environmentalists and the animal rights people. 
because the environmentalists were happy killing other creatures, even, even people sometimes, because it, it's just environmental balance. So, so that's why um, we really need to come to this point of spiritual consciousness. Otherwise, all kinds of unintended consequences uh, take place. So when you, when you, so if, if you really accept, even in principle, even in principle, that this is the nature of reality, that every living being is precious, every living being is ultimately spiritual, and then you act in that way, and you realize that all these spiritual beings have an ultimate source, which is an infinitely personal, infinitely conscious reality, and then you offer everything you do with love and devotion to that source of our existence, then uh, you're doing great. And, and, and you'll experience a, a real spiritual life. Hope that was practical enough for you. <coughs> Not really. Well, go ahead. My time is short, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, uh, you can do it. <laughs> so, anything else? Yes, please. Um, you talked earlier about um, purification and like if you have an infection in the head or anywhere in your body or um, how, uh, how do you know um, where your pain comes from? But if you have an infection, even you acknowledge it, but many people acknowledge that something is wrong. Um, is it like an autoimmune reaction, <laughs> something inside your body, or maybe it's something in your environment that makes you uh, sick? <laughs> how, how do you know um, if you're not looking in pain? Oh, you mean for the source of your unhappiness or pain? Yes. Okay. Good question. Um, actually, Life is simple, in a sense, and, and although we make it complicated, I mean, anything that's complicated, in a sense, is kind of, we didn't get it right yet. It's like, for example, let's say you're a physicist, just to give an example. I mean, obviously, physics is very complicated, but when you get to the final stage where you're really like a master, you're, you know, Wiseman Institute or something, and you really, then it's all very simple. It's just this and that and the other thing. And so the cause of our suffering, there's really only one cause of our suffering. And that is we're trying to exploit the world. Or trying to exploit our own bodies. Or trying to exploit other people's bodies or other people's lives. And so if we're suffering, say emotionally, I mean physically of course, we should probably go to a doctor. But let's say you're suffering emotionally then usually people know like you know why you know why am i unhappy is it that i'm disappointed about something or i feel like my life is going is not going anywhere or you know what is it is it relationship is it what you know what is disappointing me what is making me unhappy and then if we take that cause whatever is making us unhappy or you say maybe a general thing i don't know i'm just not happy and so um, there really is a simple solution for the, for the reason, I was going to say for the simple reason, but that was too redundant. But anyway, the simple reason is that you are by nature happy. 
In other words, if you were not by nature happy, then it might be a real question like, okay, what is happiness? How do I get it? But go back to the, the idea of purification. Water, pure water is transparent. It's, you know, very pleasing to drink. It's, it's cleansing. And so the way to get pure water is just remove everything that is not water. It's not that you have to, like, you know, manipulate the water, just take away everything that is not water, and you have pure water. So in the same way, when you understand who you really are, that you are this almost, you know, inconceivably beautiful, intelligent, spiritual being, and when you actually understand that, that the body is a, you know, wonderful, invaluable tool, but simply that, it's just a machine. I mean, if you just take an, buy an anatomy book and you'll see it, you know, it's all the different functions of the body are in fact mechanical. Miraculously sophisticated, but nonetheless mechanical. And so when you know who you really are, then you just look in your own heart, oops, anatomy, look in your heart and, <laughs> and then look, look in your mind and then just, you know, what is there in your, in your feelings, in your desires, in your thoughts or ideas that is not true to your real self. Because when you know, for example, that you as a pure soul are, uh, don't need other people to make you happy. I mean, you love other people and that makes you happy, but it's not that you're, you're not dependent. That if someone likes me, I'm happy, and if someone does, that person doesn't like me, I'm unhappy. Because when you really find yourself spiritually, you're self-satisfied. You have that power, that freedom, that no one else has the power over your happiness. It doesn't mean you don't love. That's when you can really love. Because when you're self-satisfied, then and only then, you have the power to truly love. Because love means giving, not taking. If I have, if I have all these needs inside me, that means that in my relationships, I can, you know, be nice and I love you and say all the right things, but actually I need to get things from you. You know, either emotionally, physically, I need things from you. And when, you, and, and when, I, when I need to take something from someone, I can't simply give to them. And love means giving. So to completely love when two people who are spiritually self-satisfied find they have this uh, affinity, let us say, you know, really like each other, then they both have the power to truly love. That's when the real love begins. It's not, detachment doesn't mean you don't love anyone or no one loves you. It means you're free to love completely. And that's, that's when you get a perfect relationship. So, so if you understand who you really are, then just look inside yourself and look, you know, do a little inventory, as they say, of your desires, your wishes, your attachments, and just, you know, you gotta either okay, not okay. And obviously, if we find desires and attachments inside ourselves which are not pure and spiritual, you can't just get rid of them immediately. It's like, imagine if you're driving on a highway, and let's say you're going, oh, let's make this interesting, you know, 130 kilometers an hour. That's not so interesting. That's, I thought 150 sounds a little reckless. But let's say you're going 130 kilometers an hour, and you suddenly realize you're going the wrong direction. You're going north, you should be going south. So at that point, from the moment you understand clearly that you're going the wrong direction, 
there is a process to turn around. You can't just slam on the brakes, unless you're suicidal. So you have to gradually, first of all, you have to find a place to exit or turn around. You have to gradually slow the car down. You've got to turn around. You've got to come back. So it's just like that. When you have this realization, oh my God, I'm going in the wrong direction. The, I was trying to exploit the world, get happiness, exploit other people. But actually, my real pleasure is in giving. My real pleasure is in developing this spiritual consciousness. So at that moment, you can't just slam on the brakes because you know, we have relationships, we have things we do, and so it's, it's a process of gradually slowing down impure thoughts and desires, turning around and, and then coming back, and that's bhakti yoga. So, but once you know you're going the wrong direction, and once you start the process of turning around, life is beautiful because you know what you're doing now. You know where you're going. And so patiently, we just have to begin this process of looking at ourselves, what am I doing? What am I trying to get in life? What do I think I need? Who am I really? How can I really make myself happy? And then you have the power. You have the power to make a happy life for yourself. It doesn't depend. It's not like someone else has a gun to your head that if someone else tells you, I don't love you or I'm leaving or I'm not gonna buy your product, that your life is destroyed. You have power over your own life. So, you understand? Yes? I just wonder how you connect or relate power over your own life and how you're feeling and your balance and everything with your perception of the world, watching the news, reading the newspaper. Yes. How does that disturb you? I do actually follow the news. Somehow or other I have this uh, geopolitical chip inside of me. And I do follow actually rather closely what's going, I'd like to know what's going on in the world. And uh, yeah, it's a big mess as we know. <laughs> and uh, I certainly want the world to be, to have peace and happiness for as many people as possible. And that's why I'm dedicating my life to, um, I have been dedicating my life for actually a very long time to trying to share this knowledge with people. Because I think we have to, the problem has to be solved at the root. It's like if you, if, if, you're, if you have a farm and you're farming your land, you know, there's the cheap and quick way to, to clear the land, but it's, it's, which is, let's say you just, you know, you go through the tractor, you cut down all the weeds and then you plant. And that's, that's easier, but then the weeds grow back eventually. But if you actually go through and take all the weeds out, then it doesn't grow back. And so, the real, obviously the real problem in the world is that people do not see themselves, if we see ourselves as souls, then we're all one, because there's not like, there aren't like, uh, uh, you know, American souls and Canadian souls and Israeli souls and Madagascarian souls. They're just souls. I mean, a, a, as spiritual beings, we're all one. We're all part of the same family. There's not different groups. But, but if, as soon as I think I am the body, then okay, I'm in the male group, not in the female group. I'm in the American group, not in the Mexican group. I'm in the, uh, let us say, what's that? The Jewish group. Hey. I'm in the, uh, the Jewish group, not in the Goy group. So, or I'm in the mature group, that means older. <laughs> not the immature group, the younger group. So, 
But so as soon as we as soon as we identify with our body, we're all divided. For example, I'm in this family, not that family. And interesting, uh, just one quick thing from uh, Plato. In, in the last thing, the last work that Plato wrote was called The Laws. It's his largest work. I read it actually on the beach in India, Jagannath Puri. And um, he, it, it's like trying again to come up with a utopian society. The first one was the Republic, and that was a disaster because there was a, actually an, uh, a Greek prince in Sicily that was part of Greece then, who read the book and thought, this is great, let's do a Republic right here in Sicily. And so he invited Plato, and Plato came over, and in the middle of the project, uh, the prince got assassinated, Plato was arrested and sold into slavery. His friends had to buy him back, and the Republic did not happen. What's that? Yeah, it, it was a disaster. So at the end of his life, Plato thought, let's try one more time to do a, uh, an ideal society. So he wrote the laws. But it's interesting that, so this is just the point I was making, that um, in that work, he says that we should follow the example of the Spartans, not in everything. As you know, the Spartans and the Athenians had this big rivalry, Peloponnesian War, and all that stuff. So the Spartans, not in the sense of becoming so militaristic like the Spartans, but in the sense that they all take their meals together because they want all the citizens to bond. They want all the citizens to identify as one large family. And the Spartans thought that if everyone ate in their own house, that everyone would just identify with their own family and there wouldn't be this powerful unity. I'm not saying you can't eat in your own house. I'm just saying, though, that, that, that Plato recognized that people have to somehow identify, like in Israel. Like I said, the only way Israel works, or any country for that matter, is if there's unity. I mean, a certain, obviously, people passionately disagree on many things. There, there are really passionate political conflicts and you know, economic uh, rivalries and all. Still, at the end of the day, people have to stick together and at a higher level, higher level identify with each other or, or the whole thing doesn't work. And so why not the whole world identify? Why not everyone? Why not every living being? Why not see ourselves like, like the whole universe is one team? or one family. But that's not going to happen physically. I mean, I mean bodily because our bodies are different. But spiritually we are all one and all living beings are one. So that's the solution. I don't dwell on the problems too much. I just take it for granted the world is a royal mess. I just take that for granted and I just try to get to work and, and do what I can to help it. And by the way, Israel's a great country. I mean, I, I, when I was nine years old, I was my, my, my family and I, we were collecting money to plant trees in Israel. And so I've been connected to Israel actually ever, ever almost practically since I was born. And um, it's a great country, a lot of really great people, and, um, and this is great knowledge, so it's, it's a good match. Anything else? Oh, it's just a sentimental expression. <laughs> okay. Think of, <laughs> think of a loving family, a good family, a loving family. I mean, it is, there are different people in the family, you know, mom, dad, the kids, and yet there's a, there's a, a united identity, identity. There's a real under feeling and understanding that we are one family. Or think of a couple. 
let's say there's a boy, there's a girl, you know, and, and then let's say they fall in love. There is a real sense, there's a real sense in which these two people have now become one thing, a couple, one couple. And now, of course, you can't go to the other extreme. For example, if, if a couple is so much one, they forget their individuals, that's called codependence. It's a psychological issue, problem, an emotional problem. On the other hand, if the, if the man and women are just like, yeah, we just live together, we just share the rent. That's not it either. So if you think about it in a healthy relationship, you still have a, you, you, are, you have a strong, you have strong individual integrity, you're an individual, you know yourself, and, 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 you, and you have your own freedom and, and, and all that, and yet there's also a sense in which you're one with another person. So the oneness is there, and the individuality is there, in the right balance. The same thing, for example, in a family. A healthy family, there's a real unity, they really identify as one family. At the same time, all the individuals are strong individuals. And so ultimately, it's extending this. So we're not just one with our partner, we're not just one with our family, not just one with our community or our country, but we're one with everyone. When you see yourself, this is not just theoretical, it's not just good idea. You can actually see it. You can see that everyone is a spiritual being. And when you see that and, and, and experience it, feel it, then you will actually feel complete solidarity, oneness with all living beings. That, because that's the reality. How can you experience it? Because it's real. It's actually the reality. And the illusion is thinking it's not true. The illusion is thinking that I have nothing to do with those people. They're on the other side of the wall. And so the reality, and it doesn't, I mean, certain people, for example, my teacher, Prabhupada, used to say that we, we love all creatures, but, but don't try to shake hands with a tiger. It's so, I mean, certain people, you, we have to love from a distance under certain circumstances. But still, that feeling is there because when people see each other spiritually, even if there are political problems, economic conflict, or this or that, it can be resolved because, because like in a family, in my family, you know, I was born in a family where we were four boys, every one a sort of an uber alpha male. And, you know, we were always so, no one ever took advice or instruction from anyone. And yet, the family was really united. I mean, it still is. I have, I'm on a certain path, with, and, and my, my brothers, you know, chose different lives, but it's still a united family. You know, you know there's loyalty, there's love, there's mutual support even though we've chosen very different lives for ourselves. So it's a question of finding the real way that we're all one, and that real way is spiritual. It's spiritual. Because we're all spiritual beings. Well, that's the message. So anyway, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, like I said, I, Israel, I think it's really a great country, and I think the people are great, and it's a pleasure for me to be able to spend a little time with all of you. So thank you. Thank you.